You're listening to the 10 by 9 Lockdown Podcast. I'm Paul Dorn and if you heard last week's bonus pod, you'll know we've taken 10 by 9 to Zoom. We had our first virtual event on April 29th, the night we should have been in the black box, our Belfast home. The theme was Courage and two of the three stories in this podcast are taken from that evening. But our first story was recorded by its author at his home in County Monaghan. He had wanted to tell it as part of the Zoom event, but he had a clash of engagements, even in a lockdown. Anyway, we're delighted to have it. Here's Paul Bond. Monaghan, the true centre of the universe, holds a strange secret. It was once the setting for an epic battle between the forces of good, me, and the devil himself. Close your eyes for a moment and picture the devil. What do you see? Red, horned, little goatee beard? Wrong. The devil is white, rather small, has four legs, a swishy tail and a mane and goes by the name of Humphrey. I have stared into his cold black soulless eyes and lived. I am the most courageous person ever, ever. When I was 11, my family had more pets than anyone else I knew. But they were all tiny, we weren't allowed to play with them, and they lived in Dad's aquarium. My friend Michael, on the other hand, had two dogs and a pony. And not only did he have a pony, his two brothers and two sisters all had horses or ponies as well. They all went to Monaghan Pony Club Gymkhana's and Pony Club Socials, which were like discos, but with no one dancing with each other. The highlight of the Pony Club year appeared to be the annual Pony Club summer camp, where you spent a week away from home and your parents, camping out with your horse, there would be discos, campfires and eating barbecue every single night. They made it sound so exciting. I wanted to go, they wanted me to go, but I didn't have a pony, which seemed to be the most crucial criteria in order to attend the Pony Club camp. Then one day at school, Michael told me that his younger brother wasn't interested in going to camp and I could take his pony, Humphrey. I was thrilled. Humphrey was a tiny little white thing. My feet wouldn't quite trail along the ground when I sat on him, but wouldn't be far off. I didn't care. I was going to pony club camp. I hadn't had much experience with horses, but Humphrey was so small I didn't have any fear. I had no fear of Humphrey until I actually met Humphrey. Everyone just saw this tiny little playful pony, but the moment we met, he fixed me with his cold black soulless eyes, and as I got closer, his eyes appeared to roll back into their sockets, and he bit me. I yelped. Humphrey laughed. I looked at him, and as he glared back at me defiantly, I saw it for the first time. Humphrey was the devil incarnate or rather, the devil in Pony 8. Camp started badly and then went rapidly downhill from there. If I dared try to steer Humphrey in any direction other than the one he wanted to go in, he would simply contort his neck back and nip my leg. If he stopped and I had to kick him with my heels to get him moving again the same way everybody else did, he would go forward a few paces, stop again suddenly and lower his head, neck and front legs so that I would slide forward over his head slowly. 
and woe betide me if I dared to try and get him over a jump. He would simply run at it full tilt and stop short or swerve suddenly at the last moment, both actions resulting in me flying off. I fell off so, so, so many times. The only thing that saved me from serious injury was the fact that Humphrey was so small that I didn't have a long way to fall. The worst part of Pony Club camp for me was cleaning and looking after Humphrey. This involved using medieval instruments of torture called curry combs, hoof picks and sweat blades. This grooming was performed every evening after we'd finished our horsey activities for the day. Humphrey and I had one thing in common. He hated being groomed and I hated grooming him. He seemed to take it as an affront that I dared to approach him at all, let alone approach him armed with metal combs, scrapers and picks. He regularly stood on my toes and nipped me as I laboriously tried to clean the ungrateful little thing. On the second night of camp, I was woken at 3am to be informed that Humphrey had gotten out of his stable and that I had to find him and return him and that he had to be presentable before we headed off the next morning. I wandered out to the old yard to find Humphrey rolling about in a large muddy puddle. I dragged him back to his stable and started to chip off the caked in mud from his little white body. I went back to bed at 5.30 and was woken at 6.30 for breakfast. On the third day, we set off for a ramble through the Castle Leslie estate. There were about 50 kids on the camp, varying in ages between 10 and 16, and had a variety of ponies or horses in all shapes and sizes. Humphrey was the smallest. On our way back to camp, I was in the middle of the group, chatting to people either side of me on bigger ponies. I hadn't noticed, but in front of Humphrey and I were two giant horses' asses belonging to the two oldest camp members' horses. Humphrey had noticed. He decided to nip both horses' asses in quick succession, and both horses kicked back, hitting Humphrey and I. Humphrey galloped off through a forest of thistles, with me hanging on for dear life. Stopped suddenly, and I flew over his head, landing on a bed of thistles and nettles. As I looked up, I'm sure I saw Humphrey laugh. Others thought he was being playful, considered himself the bigger horse's equal, but I knew he was simply downright evil. Camp was rapidly losing its allure. Humphrey went for his early morning spa treatment again and again, and again I was woken to put him back and clean him. Each morning I considered pretending to be ill so that I'd get out of morning session with him, but I found the courage to get up and face him. Also, I couldn't pretend to be ill and then have breakfast, and I was starving. On the last afternoon, we went out for a last ramble around the estate. I just wanted to go home. I dreamed of sleeping the night in a warm bed, without having to listen to fart jokes, without having to get up in the middle of the night to wrestle a stubborn tiny ninja pony into its stable and without dreading having to use an outdoor chemical toilet. But for the moment, we were out on our ramble. On the way back to camp, there was a very large hill and as it was the final day, we were allowed race up it. I had no intention of racing anywhere. I just wanted to go home. Humphrey had other ideas. He tore off up the hill at high speed. I was trying to hold him back. I was literally standing in my stirrups, leaning back as far as I could, straining my bony little arms to pull the reins back as far as and as hard as I could. 
It was all to no avail. Humphrey stormed ahead. I looked like a kite he was pulling after him. Humphrey stormed past, horse's ass after horse's ass. Soon we were in front. My initial fear was replaced with delight. I sat in the saddle. We were got to the top and had a moment to catch our breaths before the rest caught up. I gave Humphrey a well-done slap on the neck. He turned, smiled, nipped my leg and bucked. I ended up on the ground. This was Humphrey's victory, not mine. Humphrey was a tiny little pony, but he had the heart of an evil Arab stallion, an evil-minded, bad-tempered Arabian stallion, but a stallion nonetheless. That evening, we were assessed on what we'd learnt during the week. There were seven beginners with me in my group, and as is the way of these things, there was to be a presentation at the end with parents present, and the camp's leaders had categories for awards and would be presenting rosettes for each category. I still don't know to this day why rosettes are so desired by horsey people, but they would kill their own mother for one. The rosettes were ranked yellow for third place, blue for second and red for first. In the beginners category, they tried valiantly to make sure that everyone got at least one red ribbon. God bless them. I got one yellow and one blue. They hadn't got a category for most bitten by evil midget pony. And me... I never sat on a horse or pony ever again. The only time now I ever think of Humphrey is when I use a pritt stick and I wonder if there is a little bit of Humphrey in there and I smile. Who's laughing now, Humphrey? Thanks so much, Paul. And what an ending. Now, to keep the 10 by 9 podcast going, we need stories, obviously. So if you have a story on any theme, get in touch at 10by9.com. Email the audio file to us and tell us who you are and what theme you're working to. If you're unsure of anything, just check out our guidelines on the website. In fact, everything you need to know about 10 by 9 is there. Now, our next two stories were told at our Zoom event on April 29th. We have another one coming up soon, details later. But first, in a few minutes, you'll hear Paul Hutchinson. But before that, we have Nula McManaman. Now, Nula always tells a story as if she's sitting right beside you, just chatting away. So there might be the odd rude word in there. And just to help you out... Love and Death is a nightclub in Belfast. Remember nightclubs? And crack is not a drug reference. Take it away, Nula. Adam Clancy, he's so fancy. Uh, I gushed to my work colleagues and all they heard from me for about four weeks was about Adam Clancy and how fantastic he was and how amazing he was. So I, this was on the day of my birthday uh, 2013 and that was a Thursday and I took the Friday off because Adam came over to join me for my birthday and we were going to hang out. Um, so rewinds to when I met Adam. So back then I was living with my mate Karn and Karn is most definitely short for carnage because our interests included drinking blue WKDs and ripping around Belfast terrorizing men. <laughs> To be honest, that was just me. Karen was terrorizing the DJ, asking them to play Toto Africa. And it's like, Karen, they're playing progressive house and trap. Shut up. <laughs> so we were on a night out on the rampage and um, we were in Love and Death, which was an extension of our living room in those days. And I was throwing fierce shapes on the dance floor, which in itself was courageous enough looking back on it. Um, but I glanced across the dance floor and I seen this 
big tall fella and I was pretty sure he was looking at me and uh, ended up shimmying my way across the dance floor and was dancing beside him and he was dancing with me and we were dancing together and then we might have had a wee smooch and he ended up coming back to mine and he made scrambled eggs which I thought was super cute but now it's a bit weird and Karen was back as well we were hanging out with him having crack and having a ball and he left at about two in the morning he was doing a park run uh, the next morning so the next day me and Karen were just gushing about like how classy he was um, now Adam Clancy he lived in Liverpool but he was studying in Belfast and he had been living in Belfast up until his last year. And then he lived in Liverpool and just kind of commuted across whenever he had to hand in assignments and whatever else. So um, I had been in, I love Liverpool and I'd been in Liverpool to see in the new year that January. So of course it was fate. <laughs> so it was. So um, yeah. So he was back in Liverpool and he was like getting his flight that evening and he texted me to kind of check in, see how I was. And I remember the excitement of getting that text message from him and me and Karen were like, oh my God, he's so lovely, he's so perfect. Like, you know, this is just the best, blah, 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 discussions. Um, so he came over uh, to hand on an assignment two weeks later and uh, he hung out with me again and me and Karen like just gave him the best time in Belfast ever. He was loving or crack and he was loving like meeting my friends and whatever else and uh, my birthday was coming up and Karen had said to him you have to come over for Nola's birthday um, and actually he said he would come over so it was just like oh my god like he's definitely the one this is definitely happening so as I said I took the Friday off and I went and lifted him from the airport on the Thursday which was my birthday he gave me a card with a lovely message inside it um, can't remember the full message but it said something about being sassy and I was just like this guy totally gets me, <laughs> like this is going somewhere and uh, that was grand and um, then oh he got me a present as well, he gave me a drawing pencils and a sketchbook which was nice because I like to draw and then on the Friday we were hanging out and we had like a dander about Belfast and we went for coffee and he got a text message and he was a bit agitated by a text message but he didn't say anything and then later on that evening we were back in the house and um, he said Look, I got a text from my ex and it's just really weird because like she said, she never wanted to hear from me again, like the last time I was talking to her. So um, like, it's just really weird. I just can't believe she's texted me. And I said, well, what did she say? And she said, he said, she said, well, oh, actually she should add in that my birthday is the day before Valentine's Day. So she was texting him on Valentine's Day and uh, I said, what you said what did she say and he said oh she just said you know that she's really missing me and that she hopes I'm okay and it's just like I know what she's doing she's feeling sorry for herself it's Valentine's Day but she's just playing with you so that was fine and I was kind of like oh that's nice um that she's thinking of you and maybe you can be friends well I trying to be dead on but meanwhile my heart was sinking just being like this isn't as perfect as I thought it was and I said to him, look, you know, if you want to go and like be with her and kind of do whatever you have to do, um, I do quite like you. Um, but if this isn't going anywhere, then that's grand, you know, head on. And he said, no, I don't want to mess you about, you know, I'm here for your birthday and blah, blah, blah. And I want to hang out with you and I want to go out tomorrow night and meet all your friends and blah, blah. So that was fine. And uh, we had a big night out arranged on the Saturday, all my friends from home uh, were coming up um, to see on my birthday and 
to meet this wonderful Adam that they'd heard so much about over the past few weeks. So mates up Belfast and uh, my cousin Ruthie came up from Dublin as well. And Ruthie's a hairdresser and she actually cut his hair. So she gave him like a lovely, uh, cool haircut. And he was just like, oh my God, your friends are so amazing. And I was wearing like my best outfit and I came into the living room and he's like, oh my God, you look so good and blah, blah. And so I was like, oh, I can't remember his ex at this stage. Like this is all going so well. <laughs> ex, schmex, it's all about Nilla. So that was fine. And um, then we headed to love and death again, throwing wild shapes again, having wild crack. And Adam's friends came out as well. And uh, everybody was having a ball and uh, might've been a few shots had. Then I was looking across the dance floor and I couldn't see Adam. And like as I say, he was a tall guy, so we stood out, couldn't see him anywhere. I went over to his mate, Evan, was asking, have you seen Adam? And he says, no, I don't know where he is. So he wasn't there, checked like everywhere. And then I thought, like, he must, maybe he went home, maybe he's a bit sick. He's a wee bit of a lightweight, I should add. Um, but sure, me and Karen were dressed at that stage. That was practically had a career in drinking. <laughs> I headed home, just slipped off, didn't say to anybody. Went into the house, the door was open, and I thought, right, okay, he's here. Went up the stairs, and uh, he was gone, and all his stuff was gone, and I was just like, what the fuck? So then I tried ringing him, and his phone just was straight to voice message, and uh, no, it was near the end of the night. It was maybe about like half one or so, two, and I rang my cousin, and uh, I was like, where are you? And she's like, oh, we're just getting chips, and I was like, can you please come back? And she came back and I was like, Adam's gone. And then Karen came home and I was like, Adam's gone. They were just like, where is he? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. And then uh, I tried bringing Evan, his friend. And Evan was like, he's not here. I don't know where he is. I was actually really upset because obviously I was going to marry Adam. And we were, had this whole future together. So I was really distraught. And Karen and Ruth were brilliant. And they were just like, look, it's all right. Like, whatever. Um, so ended up like having a fairly restless night's sleep. And then the next morning, I was just kind of feeling sorry for myself and thinking about it. And it was just like, what a dick, like, you know, just disappearing in the night. And it was like, bar his number, I've no means of contacting him. I'm fucking raging, like he made an absolute dick out of me. So then I had the bright idea. I knew what flight he was leaving on. So I said, I'm going to go out to the airport. <laughs> I'm going to look the shit in the eye. <laughs> So I was delighted with this idea and my cousin Rissy just looked at me and was like, no, no, that's not a good idea. Don't do that. Don't do that. And uh, then Karen just looked and said, yep, I know Nilla. Nilla needs to do this. This is what she needs to do. Yep. I'm driving. <laughs> so <laughs> that was grand. His flight was like half nine that night. So we decided to get out to the airport super early to make sure we weren't going to miss him. I think we headed out about seven in the evening and we belted out the motorway at the Aldergrove. Oh, it was like so exciting. We we're like, you know, oh, right, definitely doing this, definitely doing this. And it was like, this is definitely the right thing to do. So we went to uh, the escalators that go up to departures and stood there for two hours. Uh, and uh, well, it was actually about an hour and a half and it was just like, oh my God, like he better come. And it was like, I really, I need this. I need like to look him in the eye. And uh, like, but oh my God, everything, like I wanted to vomit. I was sweating profusely. It was just like, oh my God, awful, awful. But I could see the walkway 
and I was just like looking and I was just like, you know, he better come, he better come. And uh, then at about nine o'clock, I seen him. <laughs> he was like coming towards the escalators in the walkway. And I just calmly as you like, walked over towards him and stared at him. And he kind of didn't see me for a while. And then it registered and oh my God, I'll never forget the look in his face. It was literally like he'd seen a dead person. But to be fair, he thought he'd left me behind. Like he thought the last he was going to see with me was across the dance floor in love and death. I looked at him and stood there with my arms folded and the girl stayed behind watching the whole thing. I said, well, Adam, how are you? And he was like, hi, hi, hi. And uh, I said, where'd you go to last night? And he said, eh. Uh, I went to my mates <laughs> and I said, Round your mates, did you? And I said, uh, Yeah, yeah. And I said, No, you didn't. I said, Your mate's Evan. I was talking to Evan. You were not in his house. You went round to your exes, didn't you? And he's like, No, no, I was around my mates. And uh, I said, I don't care where you went. I said, But you made an absolute dick out of me last night. And he said, No, I didn't. And I said, You don't get to decide that. I said, I had you in my house. I introduced you to all of my friends. You disappeared in the middle of the night. You made a dick out of me. And I said, and you sat there on Friday night and told me that you're a good person and you didn't want to mess me around. I said, you're a piece of shit. And I brought the present that he gave me and I gently dropped the card and the sketchbook and the pencils on the ground. And I said, you can have those back as well. Then I turned on my heels and walked out and the girls turned to leave the airport with me as well. And they both looked at him and just shook their heads. And then we left the airport and because it was February, it was dark. So I could see him, he literally like stood in the airport with his hands on his head. And then I had to bend down to pick up the stuff that he gave me. And then we were like whooping and shouting, rushing over to the car. We were like, Adam Clancy, he's not fancy. <laughs> Um, and then we went home and had Chinese food and it was amazing. There we go. <laughs> Yay! Yay me for my story. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thanks very much, Lula, for that magnificent story. I love the way you punctuate your stories every now and then with, so that was grand. So yeah. that was grand. <laughs> thanks for your time. <laughs> this isn't grand. You're telling us something, you're like, oh my God, that's terrible. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to have your story and we're delighted to have you um, telling it. And I'm so um, our next storyteller is Paul Hutchinson. Yes, good to go. Yeah, absolutely. Great to go. Thanks, Paul. Johnny Depp was here last night. I'm told this in the high dependency unit of the Royal Victoria Hospital. My mother says it again, her eyes shut, her hand in mine, squeezing it like water. Johnny Depp was here last night. What was he doing, I said, holding off and smiling, unsure as to the seriousness of her statement. He was in his Pirates of the Caribbean outfit. I think, I think it was a party. My mother laughs as she says this. She laughs and then she winces. It's sore when I laugh, she croaks in a low, breaking voice. Don't make me laugh. I feel so alone. I stroked my mother's right hand, all veiny and rudely punctured by an ugly plastic medical tube. Is this the morphine, I wonder? Pump it in, 
pump it in, save my mother from pain, sister morphine. I'm visiting solo at the high dependency unit. Family have made a ruda and this is my evening shift. I sit alone at the side of the bed, surrounded by busy nurses and bleeps from clever machines that monitor the living and dying of humans. And always, always, there is the uncoordinated shouting from one or more of the other occupied beds. Nurse, nurse, please nurse. And sometimes the sound is a chilling, wordless wail. A month ago, my mother talked about her forthcoming operation, quite matter-of-factly, describing in fine detail about how she would be opened up from her breastbone to her pubic bone. It jarred me to hear about such a large nine-hour operation told with such clarity and seeming lack of fear, and also to hear the words breast and pubic come off my mother's lips. We also talked at that time, but more gently, more hesitantly, about funerals, her funeral, and what she would like. The details, just in case. I know you could do the talky bit, she said but you might be too upset to do it. So I'll just get someone from the church to do the talkie bit, okay? And here she lies now, deeply wounded, but still alive, just about in the high dependency unit in great pain, hallucinating about seeing Johnny Depp in his pirate outfit, moving in and out of consciousness, in and out of sense, flooded with pain, seeped in morphine, surrounded by strangers coming and going from this world. I saw Jesus in the middle of the road last night, she whispered. He had spilt some milk. I couldn't help him clean it up. I couldn't help him. I want to say it doesn't matter, but I don't know how much it matters that she couldn't help Jesus. Isn't Jesus meant to help us? Okay, I say, knowing that it's not okay. And I steal myself and sit with a growing feeling that I should run from the ward and throw a delicate antique teacup against the wall to see and hear it smash, to make something happen. Courage, Paul, stay, sit, hold your mother's hand, listen, be present, stay in the seat of dread, even though you long to dash to the door, the longing to escape while each tiny second stretches, stretches me, and I am left in an epoch of agony. And then a bell rings and it's time to go. And my mother is saying, don't go, don't go. With her eyes closed and both arms out, hugging her, hugging where I used to be, longing for the emptiness to fill with an angel or God or some comforting body. And my mother saying, don't go don't go, and me walking away, ushered out of the ward by a strict nurse saying, visiting time is over.
and me walking backwards out of the ward, not wanting to look away in case this might be the last vision of my mother alive. Her mouth open and silent, arms outstretched in search of relief, her son having left her in hell with Jesus and Johnny Depp. God help her. Such a powerful story. Thanks, Paul. And what a wonderful contrast to Nula's romp. Thanks, Nula. The voice you heard introducing Paul was, of course, Padre Gutuma. He and I started 10x9 in 2011 in the Black Box in Belfast, and we will be back there as soon as it's safe to do so. In the meantime, join us digitally. Our next Zoom is Wednesday, May the 13th, and the theme is holidays. We are hoping to run fortnightly 10x9s and we would love people from all over the world to join in. So get in touch the usual way. And speaking of which, our last Zoom, we had somebody in Iran and we had several people in the States and Canada. So get in touch the usual way. And if you want to see our first Zoom evening, go to our YouTube channel. You can subscribe or just watch it up to yourself. 10x9 is always free and always will be. But we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. So, a big thank you to all those who have kindly donated, plus our new patrons, Brian McGuire and Asult Johnson. Many thanks. And that is it from this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and of course, Instagram. Check out the website and get in touch. I'll be back with another podcast soon. Until then, stay safe.